I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. What is consciousness exactly? Where does it come from? Is consciousness an emergent property of the brain, or is it fundamental, existing outside and independent of our physical selves? Does our consciousness, in some way, survive the demise of our physical bodies? The skeptics, of course, will trumpet loudly that consciousness is dependent on the brain and cannot exist or function without it. There are, however, scores of examples that debunk the debunkers. There are numerous stories throughout history of people who, after being declared clinically dead for a period of time, return to tell stories of being fully conscious and aware during these occasions. And this without any sign of any kind of brain activity. They tell seeming impossible stories of things they'd seen while dead, and when their stories are investigated, are found to contain elements indicating that these individuals were in fact very much aware during their near-death experiences. There are also the stories of young children who spout knowledge of things they should know nothing about, claiming to have been someone else before being who they are now. These stories of reincarnation are more prevalent in cultures where that is part of the belief. However, there are numerous bizarre examples here in North America that cannot be explained away easily, if at all. So perhaps there are really entities about us who want to communicate with us in some way. Journalist Leslie Kane, in her book Surviving Death, talks about mental mediumship as, quote, one practice in which that communication has been put to the test. Kane herself admits that the word medium might bring to mind images of the, quote, celebrity mediums like John Edward. His group readings for crossing over with John Edward were highly edited. Or Teresa Caputo of the Long Island medium, end quote. These sensational, entertaining mediums have perhaps played a large part in creating a bias in many minds against true mediumship. Kane goes on to say, quote, I am not implying these two mediums lack abilities or sincerity, but just commenting on the context, which may be all that many people have ever been exposed to. End quote. There are those in the scientific parapsychological field who believe strongly that true mediumship does exist and may be a gateway to communication with disembodied conscious entities. Morgan talks a little about this in her portion of the show, and afterward we speak with Helene Wabe. Helene is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. She completed her undergraduate degree at University of California, Berkeley in Anthropology and Pre-Medicine. She obtained her clinical doctorate at the National University of Natural Medicine. She obtained her Master of Clinical Research from Oregon Health and Science University where she has been on faculty in the Department of Neurology since 2006. She also completed two postdoctoral research fellowships. Her VET Mind study, funded by the National Institutes of Health, examined the mechanisms of meditation for combat veterans with PTSD. Her current research interests include healing stress and trauma, 
examining mechanisms of mind-body medicine, and rigorously studying extended human capacities. Dr. Wabe has had extensive training in meditation and is a 19-year regular meditation practitioner. She has published on and spoken internationally about her studies on complementary and alternative medicine, mind-body medicine, extended human capacities, stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, and their relationships to physiology, health, and healing. She was recently named President of the Parapsychological Association. Dr. Wabe is the author of some 90-plus peer-reviewed publications. In the new book, The Science of Channeling, Why You Should Trust Your Intuition in the Force That Connects Us All. Brimming with cutting-edge science, the book draws together much of her research on the subject. The Science of Channeling is written in true noetic fashion as it seeks to unite the science with practical application. Anyway, here's Morgan. Defining the meaning of consciousness is one of the most challenging questions of parapsychology, science, and everyday conversation. Everyone has an opinion, and the definition can be unique to individuals, religions, science, and it may even change due to conversational context. Is consciousness made up of microtubules in the brain operating in quantum superposition? And if so, what influences the collapse of those quantum states? Is it a surrounding field of proto-consciousness? Mainstream theories of consciousness don't account for evidence of psi experiences, and the conclusion many professors, scientists, and researchers have struck is a big paradigm shift for many. Consciousness may not originate in the brain at all. It needs to be considered that it may not be emergent, but rather fundamental to our universe. Precognition experiments by noted minds such as Dr. David Vernon the senior lecturer in psychology at Canterbury Christ Church University in the United Kingdom, yield results leaning towards this very conclusion. However, he is far from alone. The list is extensive and includes the brightest minds from the best universities across the world, including the University of Toronto, Harvard, Princeton, editors of the Journal of Scientific Exploration, and more. Invited presentations have been prevalent at institutions that include Stanford, Cambridge, just to name a few. A continuously updated database of these papers can be found online at the Sci Encyclopedia, a compilation of both historical and contemporary articles that is free from public editing. There are two prevalent arguments surrounding the concept, the dualist and the physicalist viewpoints. The physicalist view is as follows. Consciousness is an emergent property of the brain's activity. The dualist view is that it is not an emergent property of the brain's neural activity, but rather survives the death process and is translated by the brain to give physical beings a subjective and conscious experience. It is an omnipotent and omnipresent force. Possibly the best definition of consciousness using the dualistic view was written by Frederick Myers of the Society for Psychical Research when he stated, I suggest that the stream of consciousness in which we habitually live is not the only consciousness which exists in connection with our organism. I accord no primacy to my ordinary waking self, except that among my potential selves, this one has shown itself to be the fittest to meet the needs of common life. I hold that it has established no further claim, and that it is perfectly possible that other thoughts, feelings, and memories, either isolated or in continuous connection, now may be actively conscious. I have been driven to agree with the dualistic notions based on both collective evidence and my own observations throughout the decades of my career with the paranormal. 
Ultimately, it's becoming less and less reasonable to think that the brain is limited to the very basic scientific model we grew up with as kids. And it begs the question, if consciousness does not need a physical body to exist, can it express itself through other means other than the brain? In my experience, throughout the years of dealing with haunted homes, my answer has to be yes. When we speak of spirit hauntings, we're referring to the specific phenomenon of something intelligent who once had a physical presence on this planet and who has died. There are many belief systems tied up in life after death and what may happen to us upon physical death. I'm going to try and let those go for the segment of this podcast and examine what we have seen during my years of research. My conclusions around this subject have been drawn from my 20 years of study, investigation, and the personal experience of losing many loved ones and reconnecting with them after their passing. Spirit hauntings are the interaction that I love to promote among living people. They're fun, joyful, exciting, and happy connections that remind us that there is more to this world than meets the eye. It's the relationship with non-physical that we as living people want to nurture and experience because often it eliminates our fear of death and creates a deeper understanding of our world. These relationships remind us that we are far from alone, that help is within reach, and that we never really lose our life. We can't lose what we are. This phenomenon tends to be intelligent, helpful, interacts with the space around us, and responds to conversation with straightforward answers. Sometimes, this conversation can look many different ways, including mediumship, transmediumship, things like channeling, and many others. In far more direct encounters, people report seeing once crippled loved ones appear before them quite joyfully and happy long after their deaths. It includes individuals who have died in rather undesirable ways, breaking the paradigm that we get stuck if we don't die the way we all had hoped. In all my years of investigations, I've yet to encounter a human or animal spirit that is in a location against its will. Let's face it, controlling people in a physical body is tough enough. <laughs> Once people and animals are non-physical, they seem to not only be free to go and be where they wish, but are often intent on visiting with people and places that brought them joy in this physical life. Dr. Julie Baichel of the Winbridge Institute has spent over 15 years studying just this very thing in regards to communication with the deceased through mediumship. Through their advanced programs at Winbridge, Mark Bacozzi and Julie Baichel have refined the skill and tools to study and clinically test mediums, determining fact from fraud in double-blind studies that are peer-reviewed and hard to tangle with. Most recently, they were invited to serve on the advisory committee for the Yale COPE Influence Control Over Perceptual Experiences Project. The goal of the COPE project is to understand clinically the extrasensory experiences of real people who hear, see, and feel things that others can't or don't. They, along with parapsychologists, will explain that there are two main theories to describe what happens after death. The first being materialism, the idea that once the brain dies, that that's it end of story. The second is that consciousness is viewed as non-local, which means that it exists outside the brain and the brain acts like a translator of consciousness rather than a generator of consciousness. In the non-local explanation, consciousness is not bound by space or time and can move around at free will. Consciousness can experience reality separate from the body during out-of-body experiences and doesn't need the brain to think, feel, and experience what we call reality. It can access information from the future during precognition, as we talked about, 
in other podcasts, and it can also survive the death process as a thinking entity. This phenomenon has been studied by researchers who have collected and published evidence that provides cumulative and growing support for the reality of psi, which cannot be readily explained away by the quality of studies, fraud, selective reporting, experimental or analytical incompetence, or other frequent criticisms. My family was steeped in paranormal occurrences, and a lot of them bad. It wasn't until much later I discovered Albert Durant Watson, my great-great-grandfather, had very different experiences that I reshaped my history with the paranormal. The first words my grandmother spoke to my mother during one of our visits to her place were very simple. Don't let Morgan get involved in the paranormal. It's dangerous, it's bad, and will only cause trouble. Well, she held this belief for a reason. Her experiences were nothing short of awful. She rarely spoke about them. When she did talk to my dad about them, they were terrifying. She spoke of waking up in the night with a hideous face inches from her own, attack happening midday, and absolutely no control came to her or into or out of her experience. Being an intuitive woman, things would happen to her regularly, and it wasn't long before my uncle began dabbling in the paranormal as well. When he became a teenager, he was knee-deep in it and had the same horrific experiences. Albert Durant Watson was born in 1859 in Mississauga, Ontario. He was a member of the Euclid Avenue Church in Toronto, the Toronto Conference, the General Conference, the Board of Missions, and the Executive of the Methodist Social Union of Toronto, as well as serving as Treasurer of the Church's Department of Temperance and Moral Reform. Unbeknownst to him, his involvement in the Church was about to change when he fell down the rabbit hole of the paranormal. Despite his Church involvement, Albert was a man of science. He earned a medical degree from Victoria College in 1883. In 1890, he would receive another from the University of Toronto in the recognition of his graduation from the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh in 1883, and he practiced medicine for over 20 years. Watson's life was far from boring. He was fascinated with astronomy and dove right in. His papers relating to that field included the reformation and simplification of the calendar in 1896, astronomy in Canada in 1917, and astronomy a cultural avocation in 1918. He joined the Astronomical and Physical Society of Toronto in 1892, which eventually would become the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and he served as the first vice president between 1910 and 1915, and as president in 1916 and 1917. But his life changed when he joined the Association for Psychical Research of Canada and began work with them. The world wasn't ready what he was about to deliver, and the public ridicule became relentless. Growing up in the 1930s and 40s, the paranormal was never spoken of. If you were born in the 70s or 80s, think about your grandmother's generation. In the Victorian era, it was all the rage. If you weren't holding seances and spooky occasions, well, then you were just missing the social life. But by the time the early 1900s hit, attitudes had changed. A lot. My great-great-grandfather was an extremely well-respected physician in Ontario and a strict non-believer. He was a man of art and science, a fluent poet, and a wealthy doctor. He was married and had everything going for him, with a rich social life that just happened to have a fair bit of interest in the spiritual. This was something he did not subscribe to at first. His mind started to open up when he began allowing his home to be used for a channeling session with a man by the name of Louis Benjamin. As he began to overhear these sessions, which he labeled as hogwash and entertainment, 
he began to take some interest in the information that the uneducated and simple Mr. Benjamin should not have had access to, including detailed information about the death of Watson's very own mother. These repeated sessions ended up being transcribed into two books, The Twentieth Plane and its sequel, Birth Through Death, both penned by Watson's own hand. In his book, Albert spoke of a very different relationship to spirit, a relationship with non-physical that was helpful, peaceful, enduring, loving, and beautiful. His books reflected kind conversations and simple, easy access to the loved ones we believe we have lost to the death process. The idea of the spirit getting stuck disappeared, and the words of empowerment directed towards the living came bubbling forth. These weren't grave warnings. These were uplifting, fun, and artistic messages from a group of entities that called themselves the Humble Ones. This was a game changer, and this message was the basis for my program, Teaching the Living. Although when I designed it in 2002, I had no idea these conversations had ever happened. These books were quite a leap from the science and poetry that his colleagues and friends had come to expect from him and were met with a negative tongue and controversial uproars. Despite this, Watson held on to his position about what he had experienced and didn't seek the approval of readers. Instead, he offered it as information for a coming of age and believed people would either accept it or not. Either way, he put his career on the line to stand for what he believed in, and my family never spoke of him. I didn't learn that this influential and historical figure was the president of the very first Paranormal Research Association in Canada until I was well into my career. It was said of A.D. Watson by Lauren Pierce. He recognized no national, ecclesiastical, or any other frontier, but searched the world through for truth. He sifted the philosophies, the religions, and the humanities of the world. No man during this generation in Toronto ever entertained so many strange faces, tongues, sects, systems, enthusiasms, artists, poets, fanatics, and sages as he did. No home was more the antechamber to the universe. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is so wonderful to have you uh, on the show because uh, we actually spoke at the same Sayagora uh, in April. And I didn't get a chance to hear your talk because I was doing my talk, but I wanted to sit at your table. And uh, you uh, let's start with with ions because you have been with the Institute of Noetic Science for 2015. Did you want to talk a little bit about them and you guys and and what you do for the audience that doesn't know what ions is all about? Sure. So ions is an acronym that stands for the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and ions was created by Edgar Mitchell who was actually an Apollo 14 astronaut and the sixth person to walk on the moon. And he was trained as an engineer and an astronaut. He did his work on the moon and on his way home, he had this 
incredibly transcendent experience where he felt that he was one with everything and everything was one with him. As an engineer, this just kind of blew him out of the water and he really wanted to know what this interconnectedness was all about. So in 1973, he started IONS. We're actually about to celebrate our 50th anniversary, which is really exciting. For those 50 years, we've been exploring this concept of interconnectedness in a variety of different ways. Most currently, we do that through science and also through direct experience. And I am the director of research at IONS and am very honored and privileged to be able to guiding our team with the research questions that we're attempting to answer every day. The way I ended up at IONS is quite unique. I'm actually clinically trained as a naturopathic physician. And I, when I graduated from medical school, I was in private practice for a while and then got into clinical research, specifically meditation research and mindfulness meditation and did quite a bit of research at an academic university uh, looking at post-traumatic stress disorder and how meditation could support improve the, improving those symptoms. And through that, I was invited to go to a meeting at IONS because they were looking at meditation research and the different ways that it wasn't doing a great job of answering the larger questions around meditation. Because when meditation research kind of exploded in the West, it was very reductionistic in the questions that it was attempting to answer. And kind of ignoring the spiritual and esoteric parts of meditation. So we had this wonderful work group of meditation researchers. I got invited to that and I was amazed that IONS was uh, willing and courageous enough to ask these, you know, esoteric research questions that at an academic university, I didn't feel very comfortable <laughs> attempting to answer. Right. So I, I just was like, I want to work here. And it unfolded in this beautiful way. And I found myself working there in 2015 and shortly thereafter um, becoming director. It's just fantastic because I think the Institute of Noetic Science for me is such a, a wonderful gateway into some of this some of this research for people like you guys have this um, incredible ability to make this accessible <laughs> to people and i i just love that and you have written a a new book uh which which came out a while ago but i as soon as it came out i ran out and bought it because i was so excited that you had done this subject um which is for the audience the science of channeling why you should trust your intuition and embrace the force that connects us all and i this book, if you guys have any interest in, in this subject at all or just reconnecting with yourself, this is, to me, this is like the the book for this. Um, can you, oh, it's true. It's totally true. My, so my great-great-grandfather was Albert Durant Watson, and he was one of the, the presidents of the of a parapsychology association here in Canada in the, the early 1900s. And he worked with a channeler as well. So this is like really dear to my heart <laughs> that you've done this. Um, can can you talk a little bit about what channeling is, and, and can we 
define it for the audience so they know what we're talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, many of you who are listening today, when you hear that word channeling might have a specific understanding of what it is. And that was, you know, one thing that I noticed when I first entered this field, there's so many different terms and so many different definitions. So today I'm going to give you another one for channeling because I use a really broad definition. And so I define channeling as this process of accessing information and energy from beyond our conventional notions of time and space, and that it can appear expressive or receptive. And so, you know, that's perhaps a fuzzy definition, right? I think it makes more sense when we give examples. So channeling really exists on a spectrum of expression from intuition and gut hunches that are super common for people. Probably everybody can say that they've had a gut hunch about something that came true. So that's on one side. On the other side, you might have things like mediumship or trans channeling, which are two other more extreme examples on the other side. And then in between, you might have precognition, which is knowing the future or psychokinesis, which is using our intention to affect the physical world or uh, clairvoyance or remote viewing, being able to get information about distant locations. So those are just a few examples of the spectrum of what I'm calling channeling. And I propose that everyone can channel. Everyone has the capacity to channel just by being human, but that the way that it shows up for each of us is unique and individual. And it's really about exploring your own specific, unique, what we call noetic signature of channeling and how it shows up for you in your life. Maybe you get goosebumps. Maybe you see colors. Maybe you just get a feeling in your belly. Uh, there's as many noetic signatures, I think, as there are people um, in terms of how we can access this noetic wisdom, this um, intelligence from beyond our personal selves. I love how you're encompassing so much into into the idea of channeling because so, I think so often people get this impression that it's you know some dressed up medium sitting at a table that's you know that's a typically either a trance medium or or something like that but something that's very theatrical I think is what mm -hmm. what a lot of people think of and you know and it's it's not it's so much more than I what what we've been I guess led to believe by I I think presently the media Mike what do you think Well I think it's it is uh what we're presented we're presented typically when uh I have heard the word channeler uh, before I, I picture someone with a turban wrapped around their head and sitting uh, at a table with a bunch of people and lots of woo-woo stuff happening. But your description has is definitely helped me to come to a different place with it. I'm I'm kind of the the newcomer to all this stuff uh, on the podcast, so I'm discovering, thanks to an open mind, a, a lot of new things and. Just being able to to sort of like hear somebody else talk about channeling in the way that you just did has helped me to kind of think, oh, okay, that's that's a little that's a really different way to look at it. And then when you say anybody can do it, well, I know I do it. I know I have mm -hmm. these experiences because 
Morgan and I have talked about it on the show. So let's hear more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What what was it for you that caused you to discover your inner ability with this? I know in the book you you talked about discovering it for yourself and it was it was really an inner journey that was was something that was connected to your grandfather. Yes. So I have a really unique and eclectic upbringing in terms of spirituality. I was raised Orthodox Christian and went to church and Sunday school every Sunday. I attended Catholic school because those were the best schools around that my parents wanted me to go to. So I was exposed to that. And then my mother's side of the family were had a much more esoteric background. And now that I know about spiritualism, it's very close, I think, to a spiritualist um, worldview. And when I was 10 years old, my mother took me to a meeting at my grandparents' house, a spiritualist type meeting, where my uncle was trans channeling. And my grandmother can do that. My mother can do that. And, you know, every member of my mother's side of the family has some strong channeling ability that they've you know used in their lives at various points so being raised in this very spiritualist upbringing shifted my perspective on the world and you know who i am and my beliefs about my true nature that i'm you know more than this body that there are um you know, beings that are not visible mm. to our um, senses that can support us and how that we can essentially communicate with them. So that was essentially my personal upbringing. And in, in regards to my expression of channeling, I felt it at a very young age being incredibly sensitive to people's emotions. So if I walked into a room where someone was upset, I could feel their upsetness in my body. And, you know, this is beyond kind of like normal empathy. Um, it's a much stronger than I think normal empathy. And I imagine many people on this call have experienced that too. You know, you go into a crowd and you're just completely wiped out or even can get sick from mm -hmm. being in a crowd from being emotionally sensitive so I had a lot of that I get a lot of goosebumps on my skin when you know people were talking to me about something that resonated as truth uh, sometimes yeah. I would get downloaded information about people that I couldn't possibly know and as I grew older I um and at IONS actually became exposed to so many other different channeling techniques that I eventually learned how to do trance channeling as well. So I was really curious because I was doing research studies on it and my family could do it. I said, huh, maybe I could learn how to do that too and have since learned how to trance channel also. So, you know, I feel like I think of my channeling ability as this nice tool bag and I can reach into it depending on the situation. But ultimately, they're all um, tools that support me to access a broader uh, information, broader um, wisdom, if you will, that goes beyond my ego self, my personal small self. And I 
on a practical level, I think I use it a lot for supporting my decision-making personally and professionally. And I've found that that helps people a lot in their daily lives when they start learning how to channel um, that they just, their lives become more easeful because they aren't pulling their hair out about decisions in their life anymore because they can tune into what's their highest and best next step. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And and I've been, ever since I discovered my, my great-great-grandfather, I've been on a really similar journey and just understanding and, and you know what what i can tap into what is what is coming through and being able to access that and you're completely right it just changes how you go about your your decisions you don't feel alone um you know you realize i th- i think it's a a confirmation that there is just so much more that's that's present that's out there that we have the ability to tap into um you know i i, I completely agree what what do you think the challenges are with academia and studying this? Because you you mentioned that at the beginning, and you talked a bit about that in your book. Um, what do you what do you think the the misconceptions are and the challenges in in academia right now when it, when this becomes a, a subject on the table? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things that play into the taboo around these topics in academia. One of the major ones is the dominant paradigm that we hold is materialism, is reductionism, is this concept that our consciousness is generated by the neurons in our brain Mm -hmm. and is limited to that. Yeah. And many of these experiences are in direct contradiction to that supposed understanding. And the reality is we have no clue where consciousness comes from. And there's quite a bit of evidence from, you know, rigorously done controlled studies in multiple laboratories around the world that our consciousness is actually not limited by space and by time. And that we can access information from halfway across the world, not using traditional means, And we can know information from the future. And those are just two very basic examples of protocols that have been done in the lab over and over again. So when you say to a scientist who's entrenched in physicalism or materialism, hey, I can actually tune into a location halfway across the world and gain impressions, accurate impressions from it their response is, well, that's just impossible. Like you can't do that because your consciousness is housed in your brain. So they just dismiss it out of hand because it doesn't line up with their understanding of the way the world works. What's exciting, I mean, it kind of sounds depressing when you think about it that way, but what's exciting is there are many, many scientists who are offering an alternative worldview that's gaining a lot of acceptance and Uh, evidence behind it that our consciousness is not generated by our neurons, but in fact, um, is likely fundamental, is perhaps the grounded um, substance, if you will, even though it's not a substance, that our world is made of, our universe is made of. So I don't want to get into all the nuances of that, but it's called Mm post-materialism. 
And in post-materialism, there is space for these experiences to, to fit within that model. So this whole, you know, uh, schism between materialism and post-materialism, I think is one of the major issues around the taboo. Um, on a more personal psychological level, I think there's a lot of fear. I think people are afraid of these experiences, um, not only because we have this horrible human history of being burned at the stake and tortured and killed for expressing these experiences, which were very, very real uh, to be afraid of having these, but also, you know, in present time, I think there's fear around what it could mean if humans could read other people's minds mm -hmm. or if my thoughts became immediately manifest around me. What happens to road rage yeah. if, you know, I think about some negative thought to this person and then it actually ends up happening? So those are just two simple examples of the fear that arises when people think about these experiences being real in an extreme way, you know, rather than just like this gentle intuition. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's something we've, Mike and I've talked on the show about quite a bit is that I, I think a lot of this stuff is, is asking people to change a, a paradigm that they have become very comfortable with. And there's, they, they've, they feel like they've somewhat mastered the, the material world. And then when you offer them this, new design it i think it really throws a lot of people for a loop absolutely it's like well what does that mean you know yeah what does it mean for me what does it mean and like you say like what does it mean for for my thoughts if my thoughts create well that what does that mean so you know i i i agree completely i have this really i mean think about it this is such a fun thought exercise mm -hmm. to imagine what if tomorrow you know, people have this idea of a filter, that it's a filter that we can't be fully psychic or whatever. What if that filter was immediately removed tomorrow and all of my thoughts were either were materially manifested and others could know what my thoughts Ooh. were? I think it would put our world in complete chaos immediately, but then perhaps quickly we would train ourselves to be impeccable with our thoughts absolutely, because we know that they would be manifested and that people would hear them. So I couldn't rattle on in my head about judging this person or judging that person. I'd have to learn very quickly how to have a quiet, silent mind and be incredibly impeccable with the thoughts that I did have. I think our world would be much improved by that. Actually. I think you're right. <laughs> And it would make us be, you know, a better steward of our manifestations too. Just in general, yeah. like you know, just applying that, applying that now, you know, and because I think we we have this this responsibility to ourselves to to create something that we really want, and it, it's like you know when our thoughts aren't disciplined and we're not, you know, and we're not monitoring that stuff. <laughs> You know, yeah, like, and I mean, just just to appeal to everybody's greed, you want to feel as good and as joyful as possible. <laughs> you know, like that's I, yeah, I know, I completely, completely agree. Do you think that there's there's a a, a mental 
a mental illness stigma with this because I, I know a lot of people. I, I think that's the other side to it that where people automatically think, you know, oh, this is just being mistaken for a mental illness, a, like schizophrenia or something like that. And, and we know now that like, that's just that's not true. Um, but did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, thank you for reminding me about that. I have a whole chapter about this in the book that goes into it in quite detail. There have been numerous studies that have pulled various people with various types of uh, channeling abilities. So let's take mediums, for example, mediums and channelers. Numerous studies have surveyed them for mental health issues like psychoses and dissociation. And just general health and functionality. Overall, those studies show that mediums and channelers do have more uh, psychotic and dissociative symptoms, but that they don't reach a clinical threshold where a mental health professional would worry that they have an illness or anything, and that they are also very high functioning um, in their daily lives and you know functional, meaningful uh, people in their society. Um, they've also done similar surveys in people with other types of channeling abilities, you know, um, intuition, precognition, uh, psychokinesis, etc., and have found very similar results. And these have been done in various labs around the world. We've done a number of these studies. There's been multiple, multiple researchers who have looked at this. What, um, so, and those are the general findings. I don't want to diminish that there is a very small percentage of people who do have these experiences, especially when they are very intense, very frequent, and impact their lives in a negative way. Mm -hmm. uh, these people really do need support and need help and would benefit from getting some um, assessment by a health professional. And so I don't want to diminish that it's, you know, completely not a mental health issue. And yet the majority, I'd say most, not even the majority, most people who have these experiences, it is not a mental health pathology or anything that they need to be worried about. In fact, it's incredibly uh, natural, normal, and very, very common. One of the researchers that actually comes to comes to mind with this is... Um... Uh, Dr. Alexander Moira Almeida's research yes. that he's been doing with with fMRIs and, and things like that. And um, for the audience, I highly recommend to look into that uh, if you've got questions about the the brain and the studies behind mediumship and the brain and and channeling and things like that. Because his, I, I've been following his work now for a number of years, and it's just cutting edge, cutting edge stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting too that you you talk about in in your book that. I think people can have a misconception about is that most channelers actually remember their experience. This isn't like some sort of a missing time scenario where they just, you know, they're blanking out and they're dissociating or anything like that. This is a lot of people actually remember this stuff and it's quite positive for them. Absolutely. And so in my, my chapter, I go through the specific uh, mental health criteria for uh, dissociative identity disorder and um, psychoses. And 
compare and contrast what the mental health diagnosis criteria is and how it shows up in various channeling phenomena. And so one important symptom for uh, dissociative identity disorder or DID is this amnestic um, forgetting of when you're in this dissociative state. And Morgan, you're absolutely right. Most channelers these days are really conscious and they, they know what's going on. So that's just one criteria that we can give evidence for um, not being present in these kind of natural, normal channeling experiences. Yeah, there's some there's some pretty big differences um, that I, I think when you when you really get into this stuff um, is is are so important and they're so important to differentiate between what people just throw out there as as almost I guess misconceived mental illness and and the stuff that we're talking about and another another thing that, that you bring up in the book that I think is is so important is you get into how channeling works. How does it work? Because I think we touched on this a little bit, you know, with the idea that, you know, is consciousness fundamental or emergent, but that channeling works because everything is interconnected. And there's this this crossover, I think, where we've got elements of of quantum physics as it's is catching up to to this subject matter and whatnot, but that everything is is connected, that our, our brain is generating it isn't generating the consciousness that it's actually um it's actually funneling the consciousness like <laughs> translating it um can we can we talk about that a little bit and how that relates to to bringing in uh whether it be another intelligence what do you think that source is okay that's that's a lot of information yeah. in that <laughs> question i'll try to tease it apart a little bit so how does channeling work? The simple answer is we don't know. But there are more nuanced answers to that. But that's just the short answer. So, you know, when you look at Marvel movies or these wonderful sensational Hollywood movies, you'll often see like the laser lights coming out of the eyes or some sort of like force-like representation we're pretty sure that it's not working in a force-like way, meaning that there's some sort of energy that's zapping from my eyes to um, the other person who's in the other state or whatever. And the reason we know this is because the effects that we see are instantaneous. And if a force is traveling from, let's say, California to New York, to telepathically know what my cousin is doing at any particular time, my intention would need to travel that distance. And we see that uh, telepathy, psychokinesis, all that, it happens instantaneously. So there's not this, you know, time over distance that's playing into effect. And this is somewhat supported by, you mentioned quantum physics, by entanglement, this concept of entanglement. So numerous physics labs around the world have now demonstrated this concept of entanglement with photons um, and even larger molecules like small uh, diamonds. 
So what is entanglement? Imagine that we have two photons that have been entangled in some way. If I have one photon, uh, we'll use the California, New York example again, one photon in California, and I take the other one to New York, but they're entangled. If I move one in a certain direction, the other one will instantaneously move in the same direction. So their properties are intrinsically entangled with each other. So you then think about at the moment of the Big Bang or just prior, we were all entangled in some way. And then there's this uh, thought that everything in the universe is essentially entangled in some way. And thus, we can't we are interconnected with everything and can could access to it access it or affect it in some way so that's a little bit about um the bigger picture of interconnectedness and how channeling works there's also a variety of theories you mentioned um kind of this receiver idea and that's you know a pretty interesting one in that our brain doesn't generate our consciousness, but is actually our, a receiver of consciousness and that our consciousness has a specific characteristic to it that is unique to itself, but also part of a larger consciousness. There's a interesting theory by Bernardo Kastrup that you know, he's a theorist that talks about consciousness as fundamental, and he describes our individual consciousness as a dissociated consciousness from the larger whole, and that that's how we can perceive ourselves as separate, but the reality is that we're actually not separate, and that if we can go beyond that dissociative boundary, if you will, then we have access to other um, aspects of consciousness. So that's the first part of your question. And that in and of itself, we could talk for about a week, but I'm going to just yeah. leave it <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But, you know, talking about the source, because then the other most common question I get from people is like, well, who's, what's the source? What's the source? And most people are asking that question in regards to mediumship and trans channeling. Like, are there really these deceased people communicating to us? Do we really survive death? Are they really able to communicate? Are there really these discarnate beings, non-physical beings that are communicating through these people? And again, the short answer is, I don't know. With the tools that we have today, it's challenging to definitively prove in quotes that these sources are really um, who they say they are. That being said, there is so much evidential information from the you know 150 plus years of mediumship research that is quite compelling. That you know these mediums are getting information about deceased humans that they you know really couldn't possibly know in any other way except for maybe you know, psychic abilities through time or something really like it's called super psi, um, which, mm -hmm. you know, we haven't really been able to, to 
have happened in the laboratory. So that's just one example of sources for our mediumship. Um, and you know, we could say the same for trans-channeling. So my sense is that there are multiple ways that channeling works depending on the type of channeling and the person who's doing the channeling. And it really is a huge area of research that we can continue exploring to try to figure out what's going on. And in terms of the sources, I hope that someday we'll have the tools to be able to definitively show whether there's survival of um, and being able to connect with deceased people or non-physical beings. But until that time, we can think about it as a aspect of ourselves. So if we are all interconnected and you know this personality is coming through and communicating, then that's also part of me too on this kind of larger level. What I encourage people to do in the book is to, as best they can, uh, just set aside for the moment this question about source and to be more focused on the actual content and use their tools of discernment to say, you know, what do I think, regardless of where it's coming from, what do I think about this content? Is this content actually useful to me? Is it actionable in any way? Can I use it to support my life? And, um, you know, set aside this concept of chant of the source. And that leads to another really important point, which is that, you know, sometimes will people will project their authority onto channelers or mediums or people who say they can do channeling. Like it's this, you know, up on this pedestal. Oh, they channeled this. So it must be this like really amazing, true information. And I would advise people to, again, use discernment and as best they can not project their authority onto supposed channeled sources and use their own intuition to decide if it's something um, that's useful for them and that they have access to that same information from within themselves. And they don't necessarily need to seek these external sources of noetic wisdom. So all the way back at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about meditation and that kind of thing. That is something that I do every day. I'm, I'm a, a consistent meditator. Um, I do, however, want to uh, incorporate other things if I can into my pursuit of this. So what do you suggest for the novice, the complete novice? What are the, what are the best places for us to start? Meditation is a wonderful place to start. In fact, being a meditator is one of the strongest predictors of having channeling experiences uh, and doing better on tasks in the laboratory. In addition to that, so and meditation is wonderful uh, tool for strengthening your ability to focus and be attentive. Mm-hmm. You already have a great head start. The second strongest predictor is belief. So along with the meditation, I would invite you to have some conscious moments of your day and tune into 
your belief around channeling. And if it is possible for you to hold the belief that you can channel and that channeling is a real thing, because just that belief increases your chances of having experiences and also doing better on laboratory tests. So meditation, belief, um, and then I talk a lot about intention and setting intentions. If you're interested in starting a channeling practice, you set the intention, I'm gonna learn how to channel in the way that works for me. Dedicating, even if it's five minutes a day, to sit quietly in that meditative state and ask a yes, no question, and then wait and be still and notice from a place of loving curiosity what shows up for you. Nose sometimes show up as like a contraction in the body or some, you know, color that you perceive as negative or something like that. And yeses usually feel more expansive in the body or have some brighter color, if you will. But I don't want to put boxes around what you might experience because your specific channeling is going to look very different than mine and look very different. Uh, to Morgan's. And so it's really this beautiful journey of exploration to learn about yourself and how your channeling expression shows up, um, ideally without any sort of pressure to perform or do it quickly, etc. Just to really uh, be grounded and present with yourself with that intention and then keep it up every day. Just do it five minutes a day, more if you can, and you will quickly see results and those will continue to develop. I started meditating actually because I can't take medication. I've, I've had addiction trouble in my life and I had shingles in my back. And my doctor said, well, you can take some Tylenol and learn to meditate, <laughs> he said. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, I'll try this. But, but seriously, it has been... Uh, it has added something to my life. Sitting for 20 minutes a day has, has definitely added something to my life. But now, like I said, I'm wanting to expand a little more and maybe go a little deeper into things. And, and I think the ideas that you've given me uh, here during this conversation, and especially learning about channeling, because I'll be honest, when I heard the word channeling in this episode, my eyes kind of rolled mm -hmm. a little. And it is because I have held those biases that a lot of people have because of things in the media and those kind of thing. However, um, the more I learn about you and what, and in this conversation, it's like, no, it's not about what I thought it was about. And I think this is the important thing that we need to keep doing shows like this because I want people to, to be able to shed some of their biases and perhaps have a uh, a more expansive, as you have said, uh, experience in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, I'm just really excited to share about channeling so that people don't feel alone because it is so incredibly common and to show them the huge body of evidence and literature around this topic so that they feel more comfortable to have these conversations so that People like you can continue bringing these topics out in the open and having conversations about 
how it can support us in our daily lives, regardless of how it works or what the source is. For me, it's ultimately about improved quality of life mm-hmm. and supporting people to be more easeful, to reduce their anxiety, depression, et cetera. Absolutely. And to have more meaningful, fulfilling lives and to learn how to be more loving and kind to themselves and to other people. And I don't know. The world doesn't need that right now, for sure. <laughs> I, mean, uh... I know, right? I think if we could get information that could help us solve these crazy, intense problems we have on our planet today, like, why not, right? Why not? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And it, it, and, and it's there. You know, all this, this stuff is so accessible for people. And for, for everybody that's listening, in, in Chapter 10 of The Science of Channeling, I, there is... A, a blueprint layout that will help you <laughs> with all of this and it's it's laid out so beautifully because it, it's everything from what do you do with your environment what do you do with your body you know ideas mm. on clearing your mind um you know all of that kind of thing um grounding yourself stating your intention you know everything that we've we've talked about here uh it, it's it's in this it's in the book so you can get started in a way that is is like you say unique to you um and and i know for myself like like mike just having these having these these experiences for for myself and some of the information that that i've had over the years come through i mean it's it's really shaped my understanding and opinion of of all of this and and now i i can't imagine not having it it's like having a, you know, missing a leg and then getting a leg. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And everyone I've talked to feels the same way about that. Once you start and you really get into it, you can't imagine your life without it. Oh, gosh. It, it's, yeah, it, it's like a, it, as I say, it, it makes you feel and and know there's there's a knowing about it because I I've had a, a number of people ask me well you know how do you know it's just not your thoughts and how do you know you know yeah. you know when it happens yes there's also this word called ineffable um, and I think that's another reason why it's challenging to talk about these topics because you just said I know I just know yeah mm-hmm. it's so hard to describe that feeling to someone who hasn't had it mm-hmm. but then someone who has they're like oh yeah I get it and you don't even need to use words because you just get it and so when I first started I mentioned the whole thing about the terms and the definitions and it's a real challenge for our human mind our verbal communication to try to put words to these very um ineffable experiences yeah and and like you say there's it is different for everybody so you know i think the people that are looking for that that strict definition well this is how you know there's a b c and d and this is the formula and this is how i you know this is how i knew there isn't one it's it's so personal for for everyone um and i hope for for the audience listening that that this is going to get you thinking about it in in a brand new way uh because i know it, when when I, re- I read through the book it, it so mirrored so much of of what albert duran watson my, my great-great-grandfather what he was saying as well and that was so cool for me because it was like it, it was 
it was it was like confirmation. I think if he was listening, he lives today. I think it would have been confirmation for him that what he was experiencing was it was real. You know, Wonderful. that's exciting. You know, one tool that we have right now that your audience might be interested in, we developed a inventory called the Noetic Signature Inventory. It's forty four items, and it allows you to learn about your own noetic signature and how your channeling is expressed for you. So we currently have an ongoing study right now where people can take that uh, inventory and then uh, we will send them a report that shows where they lie on the 12 characteristics that we found about the noetic signature. So that might be a really fun activity and way for the audience to engage if they'd like as well. I would love to do that. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) So we're coming up on our time here. Where can people find you? We know your book is available on Amazon or anywhere that fine books are sold, The Science of Channeling, why you should trust your intuition and embrace the force that connects us all. Where else can people find you or connect with you? If they go to uh, noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C dot org, that is the IONS website. And under science, uh, drop down, you can see our publications, you can see our participate in research page where the noetic signature inventory study will be. We're also doing a really fun study on telephone telepathy and knowing who's calling you. Oh, yeah. That's at teletele.org. And um, we also have free webinars every Friday where we talk about our various projects and and related topics. So please come to our website, check out the IONS community and the many different ways that you can engage. Yeah, we'll be posting all the links for the for the audience on our, our social media and whatnot and in the show notes so that people can find everything, including a link to the book and and whatever else you, that you want send us (laughs) and it will get posted because this is this is the real deal and and this is the stuff that that if when people embrace this stuff and and really dig into it it really does change your life for the better and we can't thank you enough for for joining us today and uh and talking about this absolutely my pleasure thank you here's morgan for this episode's segment of spiritual health care in this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the Swiss cheese process. This is the perfect process for when you want to alleviate the feeling of being overwhelmed when you have many things you need to get done. This is a process specifically regarding action. First, take a large sheet of paper and write each thing you feel you have to do at the moment. Maybe you're running a business and you feel you've got many tasks to complete regarding your business. For example, you might write, phone the marketing people, update my website, order new business cards. When you have many actions you feel you need to do, some may take days or weeks, others might be little 10-minute jobs. So when you get to doing the actions, take the smaller tasks on first. They might be the ones you want to focus on because they feel a little bit less overwhelming. Each action you feel you have to take is written on the paper and a circle is drawn around it. Then, once all the actions are laid out in front of you, choose the one that feels the simplest 
Choose the one that feels the most fun and the most inspired and do that first. Once you complete it, cross out the circle. Then later, you can pick the next easiest. Pick again the most fun seeming action and do that. Cross it off your paper. The idea is that the process frees up your emotional resistance around the subject and allows some new momentum to get going. You may find you do several of these little actions in a day, and then you might even become inspired to do a few more. The energy frees up around more of them, which means some of the things that you write out might actually start shifting all on their own. Before long, you may notice the momentum changing and the universe acting on your behalf as you move forward. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.